Hello, my friends. Today, we're talking to Anthony, Senior Vice President and Chief Data Scientist at Dun & Bradstreet. And we discuss the ways in which careers are formed from uncertainty, how to think about and implement trustworthy AI, and how leaders can encourage teams to be their authentic selves. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. So I never set out to like be a, a podcaster necessarily. It just sort of like kind of happened. Well, I, I think, um, you know, a lot of times people ask me, well, how did you wind up where you are? And I think many of us, if we tell the truth, the answer is by accident. You know, you, you think you have plans and you should have plans, but things change. And if things don't change, they die. So I, I didn't start out thinking I was going to do data science. That phrase didn't even exist when I started out more than 40 years ago in technology. I've always done things that were related to technology, but when I first started in university, I was actually thinking more along the lines of nuclear physics. So I took almost all the courses you would need to get a degree in physics, and then this computer science thing became possible. So, you know, let's move all of these things over here and, you know, count them for a different major and take a few other courses, and all of a sudden, computer science started to become a thing. I was working full-time through all of my degrees. So I have four degrees. It doesn't matter. Nobody cares. But during all of them, I've worked full-time. And so even as an undergraduate, I was working a full work week. I was going to school a full load of credits. I was a calculus tutor. I was on the swim team. So, you know, I get tired thinking about that right now. But I think when we start out in our career, it's normal to have too many things going on. And then those things get winnowed and they get refined and they get transformed into something probably better than what we intended because we didn't have the perspective that we did when we started. So it sounds like you did a similar thing. I have programmed, I, the last time I counted, over 30 languages, uh, programming languages. You wouldn't want me to write code right now. I can, but you wouldn't want me to because I think that you know, our efforts at some point become better placed, maybe thinking about what the algorithmic approach is or what the epistemology is or or what are the sources of bias or being the red team and figuring out why that code isn't doing what it's supposed to do or the person who uh, brings up, you know, pesky things like regression and all of that. So I've taken on more of that role of the, the, the looking across development efforts and being the customer of the folks who actually are the practitioners of being the chair keyboard interface. I'm more of the, you know, agent provocateur of that kind of exercise. I haven't heard that word before. Epistemology? Like a belief system. What do you have to believe in order for this to be true? I can give you a really good example. Given where we are right now, this everything is disrupted, right? So everyone's asking questions like, well, when do we get back to normal? Define normal. If you think you're going to get back to what was normal before all of this disruption, you might want to think about that a little bit differently. If you think that you're going to push the AI button and just consume all the data from the past and predict what's going to happen in the future, there's an epistemology under that. There's a belief system that that data from the past is sufficiently representative and stable to represent the sufficiently unperturbed future close in. That's not true. 
that belief system is not true. It's invalid. So you can push that button and the math will work and the AI will do something and it'll call it accurate based on the prior data. But the, the belief system is what will kill you there because the, the future doesn't look enough like that past for that to be the only thing you do. Now, if you're doing it to predict the weather or you're doing it to predict something that was unperturbed, you might get away with it. Or if you're doing something a little bit more, um, like we use terms like Bayesian, you know, like consume a little bit of the future and then go back and reevaluate that kind of thing, then you can get away with that sort of thinking. But you have to stop and think, what do I believe when I use a method or a, a process? It, you can, code is code, right? It's hard to do, but it's doable. The really hard part is challenging what you have to believe in order to use that tool, that approach, that data. Are there other beliefs in AI that you see common technologists, people that aren't necessarily experts in AI, but they're in technology, like misinterpret or beliefs that they, they hold that are just wrong? Uh, many. Uh, the biggest one I see lately is this whole AI ML thing. Like, let me just consume a whole bunch of data and, and hit, you know, predict, right? Um, another big one is um, there's so much data now that if you look into any sufficiently large corpus of data, you'll find something that supports what you believe. That doesn't make it true. So that's called confirmation bias, right? Where you go in with an ingoing assumption of what the answer is to the question, and then you find conveniently only the data that supports what you think is true because you think you're so smart. And maybe you are, but uh, maybe you ought to let the data speak for itself because it doesn't care what you think. And unfortunately, there's a lot of that. And more unfortunately, the higher up you get in organizations, the more you are likely to introduce confirmation bias because you've been successful. And so you you convey a sense of certainty when you speak. You convey a sense of knowing things or at least feeling strongly convicted in what you believe. And then people want to please you and they want to, to bring the answer to you that will make them make you happy. Um, those are all different sneaky ways that confirmation bias sneaks into data science. Uh, another one, just I mean, there's so many, but another one that I see a lot is just really bad sampling. We forget all the stuff we learned in statistics. There's a reason why they make you take statistics when you study computer science, because you have to understand whether the data that you're looking at is representative of the thing you're trying to study. And a lot of times we use what's called a convenience sample, the data we happen to have or the data we most recently got, or the data that is permissible for us to use, you have to be able to, to answer the question of how the data you're not using looks like the data you are using enough to, to draw sense from it. And a lot of times we don't do that these days. We just use whatever data we have because we're in a hurry and there's a lot of data out there. Let's go use this data. It's a very dangerous thing to do. You inherit whatever's wrong with that data you inherit and tend to multiply in the conclusions that you're reaching from it. So those are some of the big ones. And how are you using AI properly at Dun & Bradstreet? And what, what are you using it for? I mean, I have a very basic understanding of what Dun & Bradstreet is because like, I needed a Dun's number once yeah. for something I was doing. And I had to go register and I was like, all right, I got this Dun's number now. Yeah. And it looked like, for, for you could correct me, please, but I was like, oh, there's like some business credit score type deal, information database yeah. thing. Yeah. And and that's, that's the very eloquent... <laughs> Conclusion I came to. It's a fair conclusion. So it's like the you know the, the 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 story with the blind guys that all encounter an elephant for the first time, and one is touching the leg, and he says the elephant is like a a tree. You know, it's, it's 
virtually immovable and it's thick and it and then another one is touching the tail and he he says it's it's like a snake and it moves and another one's touching the trunk and he says it is like a snake but a very thick snake and it, and there none of them really understand the elephant because they're all touching sort of a part of the elephant and it, they don't have the sense of what an elephant is that's a lot like what our company is like i think you tend to touch it in in either looking at total risk or total opportunity or what you're calling you know credit on self you know trying to get people to give you money or do business with you or whatever those are all different major use cases that we have so in in total risk it's helping companies understand who they're doing business with and whether or not they want to assess the right amount of risk in doing that business that's how we got started way before this was a thing way before there was an internet way before there were databases uh, way before the Civil War, there was Dun & Bradstreet. And what was happening at that time, it wasn't called Dun & Bradstreet, but the, 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 the seeds of what we are now. At that time, what was happening was westward expansion. And all of a sudden, you couldn't just get on a horse and go see the guy that you were going to go do business with. First of all, you might die doing that. Second of all, it might take months. Third of all, he might not be there when you get there. So this business of visiting businesses and forming an opinion about their the character and quality of the business and their creditworthiness and and various other aspects of the business was born. And then from that was born all kinds of other things. Uh, what, sales and marketing, how do I find new customers? How do I find businesses that look like my best customers or businesses that look different if I want to branch out? How do I find businesses in a certain part of the world? How do I make myself known to other parts of the world. That's the sales and marketing side. And then there are use cases that are combinations of those, like when companies are doing mergers and acquisitions and divestitures, they need to check each other out. They need to check their customers, their supply chains. So all of those start with collecting information about companies all over the world, uh, hundreds of millions of entities in this database, understanding how they're changing, so millions of updates a day, and understanding how they connect to each other, so the linkages. Uh, most companies in the world are not public. They don't have to tell you anything, and we have to figure it out. So there's a lot of modeling. There's a lot of discovery, recursive discovery, the kinds of things that we call AI now were being done here way before they were called AI. And then, you know, the dirty little secret, a lot of times this data is coming in in different writing systems, in different languages. There's different laws around the world about what you can collect, what you can't collect, keep this data over here, don't keep this data over there. We have to comply with all of that as well and do all of that millions of times a day to get it accurate, complete, timely, connected, and relevant in products. Other than that, it's pretty straightforward. Do you, when you're displaying data, data that you've inferred that wasn't necessarily given, do you, does the consumer of that or the person experiencing it have some sort of scale or rating as to the accuracy? So accuracy is a, is a tricky thing because there's many ways to measure accuracy. If there is some authoritative truth that you can compare to, then you can measure accuracy. Let's say um, you know, we have a standard that says this is exactly how long a meter is. And then you measure something and you can compare your measurement to that scientifically accepted standard for what a meter is. When the question is how many employees does a company have, has businesses all over the world and who's getting hired and who's getting fired and 
you know, who's asleep when you're asking the question and, and what, how do you count employees and do you count contractors or not? And, and there's a nuance to that type of question that makes it such that if the company is willing to tell you what they think the answer is, you can accept that in some cases, in many cases, as an authoritative source. It's a public company. There's laws against lying, you know, shareholder transparency, all that kind of stuff. But if it's a private company, um, getting at that answer sometimes involves consuming the answer in any way that it's available and then testing the veracity of that or the reasonableness of that. Sometimes it involves modeling. Sometimes it involves uh, taking samples of other companies that are similar, looking at a bunch of parametric views of the entity to try to zero in on what you think that might be. When you're done doing that, you can backtest the accuracy of that model to the extent that truth, authoritative truth becomes available. But it's difficult. What everybody wants is, you know, tell me exactly what the number is today and how many degrees of freedom you have around that number for that particular entity in that particular context of that particular question. That requires an authoritative truth that you can go look up. So it's, it's kind of a vicious circle. But the short answer to your question is, sure, internally we measure the performance of these models, the performance of our estimations. We have to, um, you, you know, you're talking about a broader question here, which is around synthetic data, filling in data when the boxes are empty, right? You can't model a phone number. It's a phone number, right? Uh, but there are ways to estimate the size of a, an aircraft manufacturer or a, a law firm or a consulting company, something like that. Like I said, I had set up a profile. Do you have interfaces that I could give you more data? There's lots of API ways of connecting your data to our ingestion of data. And that is definitely a best practice for a small business because you want to be known to the world in a way that accurately represents your business so that they can do business with you and lend you money and decide whether or not they want to do whatever it is you want them to do so that your future customers can find you. It's, it's really important to get this right. A lot of times people look at it as, oh, well, why should I tell them? Well, because you're out in the world and you want, do you have a website? Do you have a business card? Do you have a, you want people to know about your business. It's not a secret. I mean, if your business is something very confidential and you don't want the world to know about that, that's a different problem. But 99 plus percent of businesses want to do business. Yeah. If you were to, in like one or two sentences, describe exactly what Dun & Bradstreet does, how would you do that? So I call it the one breath resume, right? Like before I get bored and walk away, tell me what your business, what your company does. And I usually say, well, it's essentially it's total risk, total opportunity. Helping customers, helping companies understand the risk of doing business with another company or the potential opportunity of doing business with another company. If you let me, if you say, what do you mean? And you let me get one more breath in there. I'll say, well, you know, there's a lot of reasons why you might want to do that. Credit scores is an easy one to understand. You know, how likely are they to pay me? How likely are they to pay me on time? But then there's probably some other things you should think about, like fraud. Are they who they claim to be? Are they authorized to do what they're purporting to do with you? You know, you, you want to push that AI button, right? The best bad guys, if they think they're being watched, they change their behavior. So if you model, you're modeling how the best ones are no longer behaving. Uh-oh, how do you deal with that? Well, let me tell you, right? So there's there's all sorts of interesting corners of this that that are fascinating 
to those who care. But total risk, total opportunity, compliance, sales and marketing, uh, risk, those are the, the rocks that stick up out of the water. And then what does your day-to-day look like? And what's your official title, by the way? I'm the chief data scientist at Dun & okay. My day-to-day is a combination of creating new capabilities that don't exist yet to make all of those things happen. So we work on things like linguistic disambiguation and semantic inference and understanding dyadic relationships like buys from, sells to, network effects, finding anomalies, finding fraud, finding new ways of understanding identity resolution, geospatial inference. So all kinds of sophistication behind the scenes to make all of those things that I just talked about happen. And then also dealing with our generally our bigger customers or our customers that have the more complex problems to sort of bigify what they do from just, you probably think of us as either a credit report or a source of data, both of which are true, but there's so much more. So can I please help you graduate from that view to something that can enable you more? If you're a smaller business and I'm getting involved, I'm probably getting involved because you're representative of some larger class of problem, like many businesses have this opportunity, whatever it is. When lockdowns were happening all over the world, you had companies that all of a sudden the gig economy was huge focus. You know, people worked for more than one company if they worked for smaller businesses or owned small businesses. You had businesses reinventing themselves. They used to make scuba gear, now they're making respirators, right? How do you figure that out? How do you, well, that semantic inference that I talked about. That's one of the ways you might do that from how they talk about themselves or how others talk about them. So it's a combination of creating new capability and then enabling that new capability into use cases that are bigger than the one that they had before you got in the room. And then I also work around the world with places where the laws are changing and the the view of what you can and can't do or shouldn't do with data is changing. So I sit on a bunch of external Uh, advisory groups with universities, with think tanks and so forth. And part of that is to share what we think, our epistemology, if you like, but also to, you know, these regulators, just to take that as an example, regulation, you could say, well, it it slows me down. Well, I'm a scuba diver. That regulator is pretty important. Without the regulator, you're going to die, right? But if it, if it overly regulates to the point where there's no air, then you're going to die also, right? So, We have to help make sure that concepts like trustworthy AI and uh, permissible use and data rights and all of these really squishy problems that are coming up, that we bring our best thinking to the table and that we we speak where possible and and join with others to make sure that that we, as a human race, make the right decisions. We are at a, a cusp very much with AI and with data right now where we have enough compute power and probably enough data to do most of the things we want to do. Now the question is very often between can we do it and should we do it? Or what happens if we don't do it? You know, those are much more nuanced questions. So I do a lot of work in that space as well. Given your expertise and the amount of data that you know the company has and, and you said you sit on some boards and, and do those types of things, I was curious to know like how often is the government 
specifically with the situation that we have now, right? All the experts are arguing, just flip open YouTube, right? Somebody says this, somebody says that. But you guys have this massive amount of data of what's happening with businesses. Like that's your entire existence is like evaluating and understanding these businesses and what's happening to them and how they're changing and whatnot. Is like the Fed coming to you and saying, hey, what's what's going on, at least from your perspective, or is there not communication there? Certainly serving the public sector is part of what we do as a business. So uh, with, again, without getting into specific relationships with specific customers, it is absolutely a part of our business to serve parts of the public sector that need to ask very important questions like, where do we lend the money to have the most impact? Or did the money have the impact we intended it to do? How do we help respond to this disaster? And it's not just in the United States, it's all over the world. One of the most personally inspiring things I've ever gotten to do was to work on the remediation of the data in Japan after the tsunami and the earthquake and the tsunami and the the um, reactor issues at the Daiichi nuclear power plant and all of those horrible things that happened, there was a lot of people assuming nobody was in business anymore in Japan. Well, that, that was the farthest thing from the truth. So you don't want to add starvation on top of all of those other problems that they have because everybody stops doing business with them. Uh, you're going to need to invent some new ways of figuring out who's still in business a lot faster than the way you did it yesterday if you're going to respond to a ma- uh, an emergency of that magnitude. So we tend to lean into big problems like that. We are not afraid of running toward the problem and helping whoever's got that problem see it differently and hopefully see it more clearly and in a way that's immediately actionable. This is not just theoretical data science. This is for real problems in in most cases. In the business world, like at large, has the the volatility of the market made data scientists or data officers more valuable? It certainly has made them more visible. I think time will tell whether it has made them more valuable or whether they are, the term is sort of fading. There's a lot of titles and positions in companies that stay because they are unambiguously necessary forever. And then there are others that can be more ephemeral because they get federated. Whatever that person in that function did becomes part of more of the rest of the organization. I think this particular field is a little bit of both. I think that it's evolving. I think that data officers, that role of being responsible for the discovery and the curation of data, making sure that we bring the right data in, that we're compliant, that we care for that data, worrying about what that data is intended to do. And then you cross the line into synthesis, like making sense out of the data. There are other roles like keeping the data safe from cyber attack and ransomware and all that. That's another whole branch, right? There's a lot of debate about what job title has all of these responsibilities. I don't tend to get involved in that debate. I think it's more important that there's a there's a proper race in an organization that you understand what needs to be done and that it's being done and that there's somebody held accountable for that and that they're getting the right advice from others who also have a stake in that game. It's not an easy thing to do. For smaller companies, it tends to be one person or two people. For larger companies, it can be so many that they forget to talk to each other sometimes. And you get these silos where, you know, I, I like to say that lessons learned are only lessons learned if you learn from them, right? They, the learning isn't institutionalized across the organization because it happens in, in a silo. And then we make the same mistake over and over again in different parts of the organization. So it's an important role that I think will continue to evolve. I think it'll become more like a practitioner, clinical practitioner, as these 
systems and environments become more complex, we have to form a sort of like a differential diagnosis of what we think is going on or what we think can be done and then test it and capture those learnings and then intervene again. It used to be possible to just know all the data that was in the environment and know what you could do with it. When you and I got started doing this, I could, I'm sure you could take the computer apart, put it back together, write your own drivers, you know, wasn't that fun. Well, you can't do that anymore, right? So it's going to have to evolve and it, it better evolve because there's no promise that things always get better. We have to make them get better. I, I always, when I'm talking with like newer engineers, we have an advantage because we're higher in the stack now, but we're also at a, at a disadvantage because in the 1960s or 70s, you could walk into a computer, yeah. <laughs> right? Yes. And you could see all the parts <laughs> that made it work. Now yeah. it's just this impossible chip that you can't, it's right. just a square. Yeah. And, and some would argue, who cares, right? There's open source code, there's libraries, there's edge computing, there's, you know, uh, all these ways of putting increasingly complex things into increasingly smaller, more obscure components, right? And then you start thinking about supply chain resiliency, you start thinking about what happens if there's microcode in there that does something you didn't intend it to do, what happens if you are overly dependent on a particular, within your development stack, a particular capability that evolves in some way because of a problem or a known, you know, an unknown uh, vulnerability, all of a sudden now your product doesn't work. Everything's connected to everything now. And so it's, it's no longer possible to do anything other than reasonably trivial things. In a silo, you're, you're incorporating a lot of other people's work. And that means you're inheriting a lot of people's assumptions. And it means you're multiplying the error in some cases. It means that you are inheriting vulnerabilities that you may not know about. So the, the job of being a developer, being a, a leader of people who are developing anything, has become much more complex in the sense of you have to be able to vet those people that you're hiring. Are they just integrators of other people's stuff or do they think about the bigger picture of what they're doing and the implications of it to those around them and those critical dependencies? And in, you know, in some organizations, you don't want that. Just do your job. Here's the spec. Do this thing. And you know, we're agile and hurry up and don't ask too many questions because we'll deal with that in the next sprint, right? I'm not anti-agile, but I'm kind of anti-negligence. So you have to be careful that you don't take that too far. Got more questions about you. So you speak clearly, your vocabulary is higher than average. How do you do this? Do you think your thoughts through and, and write? Do you have a writing habit? H how do you organize your thoughts so that they come out clear? Well, thank you for that. I, I hope it's true. You know, Einstein said that if you can't explain something, maybe you don't understand it, right? So I think that part of the secret to explaining really complex things is making sure you understand them before you open your mouth and start talking about them. I think it's also important to listen to what you're saying while you're speaking because sometimes you get into this loop where you're, there's a lot of words coming out, but you're not really advancing the, the thought. I think it's also fair to say that there's an element of practice in it. When you respond to a lot of people asking you questions. What do you think about AI? What do you think about bias in data? How do you know if something's true? You get to a point where 
you have an opportunity to refine what you said the last time and make it even better the next time instead of just pushing play and saying the same thing because it seemed to be, you know, somehow pleasing to the crowd. You haven't, I think, a duty when you're speaking publicly, even like we're doing right now, to pay attention to what you're saying. You never know who's listening. You never know who you might be influencing. You never know who might be taking notes. And you have an opportunity, but you also have an obligation to those unseen others to pay attention to what you're saying and not just hit play and act like a star. I mean, you're never as important as you think you are. You should really pay attention because there's somebody really important out there that you don't know about. Yes, I mean... I happen to love this. That's <laughs> I've made a career out of it, just finding smart people and asking them questions. Yeah, <laughs> and I, there's an element of that too. If you love what you're doing, which I do, and I'm, it's obvious that you do, it comes out in how you talk about it, the passion with which you can talk about it. There are times where you can take that too far. You know, ask me about quantum algorithms and. Pretty soon you're going to be saying, please stop talking about quantum <laughs> algorithms, right? Um, but they're fascinating, right, uh, to some people. We joke in my group, uh, we're arguing about calculus again. You know, like we actually use calculus, but most people don't care, right? So uh, you have to be careful that you don't take it too far because anything can be taken too far. And now you're down in the weeds talking about how you connect the flux capacitor to the flumnosticator and nobody cares. And they'll nod and they'll do the fascinating and they're Googling Flumnosticator. And, you know, it's that's not a thing, but you're serving no one when you do that. So I think it's important to not cross that line. I also have a kind of a weird thing that when I get more tired, my words get bigger. I don't know why. It's just a weird thing. So um, (laughs) I have a tendency if I'm really busy or if it's the end of the day or if there's a lot of things going on, I will have a tendency to say things in a more complex way because it's more dense. It's more efficient. And then, you know, it gets to the point where it's mockable. I I said to somebody one time, do you think this is abrogative of our pre-existing strategy? And he looked at me with a straight face and he said, it might be. If I knew what that meant, <laughs> so you, know, you can take it too far. Definitely, I I do something different when I'm tired. I just get funny. Well, I do too. Yeah, I get yeah. silly. <laughs> silly with big words. Yeah, <laughs> that's an awesome combination. There is a tendency. Um, actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I think people misinterpret humor, especially in the workplace. You don't want to be a clown. You don't want to be a buffoon. You don't want to be always joking around. But if people are afraid to show their authentic self, to laugh a little bit, to to have a little bit of joy in what they're doing, you're probably not going to get their best creativity. You're you're not going to make them feel like they're doing something they want to do. They're doing something they have to do. There, There are leadership styles that are very effective that are predicated on doing that, instilling fear. When you study, um, I used to teach courses in power and influence. One of the most effective types of, of power is the ability to punish and then the ability to reward in that order, right? So when we castigate somebody, when we, when we criticize them, that's a type of punishing, right? Uh, when you give them the endorphins that come with humor, that's actually less effective, studies show. I want to say, I don't care. Um, that's not necessarily who I want to be, but I do respect the fact that there are situations in organizations in life where there's no time for that, and you've got to get people to stop, focus, pay attention. This is what we're doing. This is very serious. You got to know when to do which, and it's not 
it's not always obvious. So, well, well said because you know through all of these hundreds of interviews, one of the things that I have found is when I started, I thought there would be like an answer, like okay, here's your style, take this test, here's the type of leader you need to be. Yeah, and then I realized. It's more like cooking a meal where like you have to adjust as you go yes. and you have to kind of figure there's some basic concepts that you need to understand and that work, you know, relatively well as a base. And then you sort of just have to figure it out as you go and knowing when to inject humor versus when to be serious and understanding the energy of a team and how to raise it or lower it based off of what you need right now. All of that mixed together is what I found according to my definition of what I consider a great leader. So what you're talking about in in the study of leadership is called reflective leadership. Not just leading the way you lead because it feels right, but thinking about why you do what you do and actually reflecting within yourself on the choices that you make as a leader. It is a very compelling point that reflective leaders are way more effective, sometimes intuitive leaders who just lead and they know what to do when they say we're going that way, can be very effective and they can be this sort of unconscious competent. They don't know why they do what they do and they're not doing it on purpose. Those are very a very rare breed. The folks that challenge what they did today, how effective was it, where could I have been more effective, how could I have been more effective, who seek feedback from others, and I'm not talking about sending out a survey or a thing, or I'm talking about going and authentically having a talk with somebody and saying, you know, Let's take the stripes off. You know, I don't, I don't feel like that went well. Tell me how you felt. You know, tell me where it came from, from your perspective. Sometimes explaining why you're about to do what you're about to do. We were talking earlier that I have a, many years in as an EMT, so emergency response. When you take incident command, one of the things they teach you is how to evacuate an area. Like if there's a gas leak or a, some like not obvious danger to a large number of people. You don't have time to do what they do in the movies, you know, run around, you know, you know, the thing's going to blow up. That's not how it happens in real life. In real life, somebody, the incident commander makes a decision. We're going to go to the high school. You don't always know that that's the best place to go. You got to pick a direction because if you tell people to evacuate the area and leave immediately, half of them are going to move in the wrong direction and they're going to move to someplace more dangerous. So you pick a place and you say, we're evacuating the area. Please make your way to the high school. Further instructions will follow, right? And you have to say that with conviction and clarity and certainty that you may not actually have in that moment. That's not a lack of authenticity. That's called saving people's lives. Rarely in corporate America is somebody going to die if we don't make the decision in this instant. So that ability to stop and say, why am I doing this? Don't hit send yet, right? Why am I doing this? What am I trying to achieve? How could this be misinterpreted? Who can help me? It doesn't mean you have to overthink everything, but it means you could probably think a little bit more about the really important decisions and probably be a little bit more effective if you just take your ego out of it a little bit. So that's sometimes called authentic leadership. That's sometimes referred to as reflective leadership. They're kind of cousins. They're not the same thing. And then there's another cousin of that, servant leadership, which is leading for the benefit of those you lead rather than for your own personal health, you know, just trying to get more of whatever it is you want. Like there's a lot of people that that is really their objective function is to climb over the bodies of everybody else and get more of whatever it is they want. It can be very effective for some people. I don't I don't want to be that person. So you have to decide who you want to be and why you want to be it. These are 
questions that have been around for thousands of years. But it's amazing. That's that's a, it's like a choose your own adventure. You can decide what type of leader you want to be. You can go hard in that direction and then realize what the balance is for it and then adjust accordingly. And you may not get what you want. You may get more of what you need. Yeah. You may not actually get to where you thought you were going. You have to be open to that. You know, in martial arts, there's a principle I call being like a reed in the wind. You see it all the time in movies and stuff. It, it, instead of resisting whatever's happening to you, you sort of bend with it and then use that energy to go somewhere else. And then depending on the style and the epistemology, some were better for both of you or some were better for you. But a reed is not weak. A reed bends in the wind, and that's what makes it strong. You can kill somebody with a reed, right? But if the reed were to try to oppose every breeze that blew on it and, and resist everything like an oak tree, it wouldn't last very long. So thinking about it like that, reacting, this is going to sound really weird, but reacting in a proactive way, like reacting with purpose, reacting to a place that you choose to go is a very empowering thing to do as a leader. When I was in my early 20s, I was having a rough time. And somebody that I was close to at the time, they said, it's clear that you're drowning and you need to, like, instead of fighting the waves and drowning out there and splashing around, they're like, you need to learn how to flow with it. Yeah. And uh, you, instead of drowning, you need to ride the waves yeah. and, and figure out where, where that's going to be and, and position yourself there. And then you'll have a much smoother experience than right now. Things are just coming at you out of nowhere. If you watch Olympic swimmers, they don't make a lot of splash, except for butterfly, but <laughs> in general, even in butterfly. If you watch Olympic swimmers, there's not a lot of wasted water, right? You don't see their arms flailing around. It's, it's very efficient. And a lot of that wasted energy of, you know, pontificating and fumpering about how important you are and making people fear your next words. And, you know, <laughs> all right, fine. You can win. You want to win? You can win. But we have a bigger problem here than making you win. We're trying to do something. And obviously you can't say those words because you can be right and dead, right? <laughs> so you have to, you have to find the way to get that advice in there in a way that can be received by the other when you're in those situations. Not always easy. And, you know, since this is a tech audience, very often these things happen when the thing broke or the thing didn't do what the thing was supposed to do or you're trying to play, replace the thing with another thing and the other thing doesn't do the thing that the first thing did. And you got a lot of experts running around trying to outthink each other and out-expert each other. And very often they are... I use the analogy of trying to push the rock up the hill, right? If you if you push, if you all get behind the rock and push, the rock goes up the hill as efficiently as the, a rock can go up a hill. But if you start, even if you're all pushing up, but you're pushing at vectored angles, you're wasting a lot of that energy, and that tends to happen. And then somebody will come along and, and yell at the rock, or somebody will come along and say, lead harder, you know, like these ridiculous... You know, clearly you're not effective in pushing that rock. So I'm going to ask you to push the rock and a bigger rock. You know, it, that happens in tech all the time because it's a constantly changing environment. And you thought you were responding to this thing and then that other thing happened and you never finished this thing. So you get into this state of hyper disruption is what I call it. This, this disrupted disruption. Uh, Peter Vale 
amazing man, wrote a book called uh, Learning as a Way of Being, and he talks about organizational whitewater. When organizations are in this state of constant frenzy, you do different things when you're in whitewater than you do when you have time to patch the holes in the boat and so forth. So as a leader in tech, if you're always in whitewater, you have to reflect on how much of that whitewater is being caused by your attempts to deal with the whitewater, to use your example of you know, trying to swim so hard that you're creating a lot of splash and waves and Sometimes the easier way to move forward is to not push as hard and to push more efficiently. It's not, it's easy to say, not so easy to do when there's, you know, 17 priorities and four people trying to address them. It's hard because it's also a little bit, uh, it's like abstract, it's a little ambiguous, right? Yeah. To try to figure it out. And it's it's not a quick thing either. Like it takes, for me, it took like years. I yeah. One of my first moments growing as a leader was, you know, I, I was individual contributor, software engineer, and I'd sit there and, and write test-driven development. I'd command the computer to do things all day, a hundred times a day, thousand times a day. I'd send co- commands, and if anything failed, it would give me a, a debug, a log output. Right, so I knew exactly and it why. Did I did what you told it to do, whether that was what you intended or not. <laughs> yeah, and then I'd go interact with people in my life, whether yeah. it's a relationship I was in or a, you know work thing, and they don't do any of that. <laughs> <laughs> No. And so uh, somebody had said something to me because I was getting frustrated and uh, they said, you know, you can win the conversation, you can win the argument, but lose the relationship. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow, that that you can be right and lose the relationship. So having that self-awareness of like how how hard do you push and like where do you push? Those things are actually really important. Is the concept of overt intentionality, doing what you do on purpose. We can't always do everything we do on purpose because we get tired, we're human beings, we have you know egos, we have history, we, we attach that history to people that don't even know us and say, oh, they're like that person. They don't know they're like that person, right? I can't work with him. I worked with him two years ago and he was a jerk. Well, are you the same person you were two years ago? Of course not. Well, why don't you let him not be who he was? two years ago. Like, why don't you, you know, at least start from the premise that life has put you back together for some reason. These are very easy things to say, very hard things to do. People are not generally as non-deterministic as programming environments. And sometimes the way we see that the situation is clouded by all of that context that we imagine to it that may or may not be there. It's Some scientists argue that that's how the human race has actually survive is the ability to intuit context where we don't have enough data. You know, you hear a growl, you see rustling, you imagine an animal, you don't have to actually see the animal. That probably helped us not die in caves and forests, but it might get in the way in in the corporate jungle. Can't believe I just said that, but yes. (laughs) As you've gone through your career and as you've grown in your leadership and you know your responsibilities and all of that there's obviously stress and there's things that go along with that and I'm curious to know as you traversed and had that journey how has like god played a role in all of that well I, if i can substitute spirituality in your question yeah. just to be more inclusive of people who might be listening huge absolutely huge in my life I, you know, I don't have any problem. I consider myself a scientist, a for real scientist. I don't have any problem also being a spiritual person. I, they're not in any way in conflict for me. I understand that there are people who can construct arguments that attack that position that I just took. 
But you asked me how it has affected me, and I'm telling you how it has affected me. So my spirituality is a big part of who I am. It's a part of how I try to treat other people, regardless of whether they respond in kind. It's a, it's a way that I try to think about serving others first, about being as authentic as I can, as truthful as I can, you know, not to to want their stuff, to help them keep their stuff. Um, that Those are all very spiritual things. I don't want to crush the other person in order to win. Now, in business, you know, somebody's got to win. One person gets the contract. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about these broader things. I've led very large organizations with hundreds of people, and I've led very small organizations with, you know, you can count them on one hand. Um, the smaller ones are much harder because the larger ones, you, you don't lead hundreds of people. You lead seven or eight people, and then they go and lead other people, and, you know, you convince yourself that you're controlling this very large org chart, but in the reality is you're you're dealing with this council of others, right? In order to have a council of others, you have to take counsel from others, and that's a very spiritual thing as well. So I don't they're indivisible to me. Nice, yeah. What is you mentioned it in your biography, I think, or in, in your about section? What is trustworthy AI? Uh, so I would direct you to the OECD work that's being done in this area. Um, one AI, one T-A-I, because there's volumes and volumes of information on this. But in a nutshell, AI doing what we intend as humans for it to be doing in a way that we as humans can understand not only that it's doing what we intend it to be doing, but that it's doing things that that project our values and our intentions in so doing. So I'm trying not to name specific situations, but there's been some very visible things in the recent past where AI accidentally did something that the purveyors of that AI didn't intend it to do. You know, let's say you you take a quiz on social media. You know, if you were a tree, what kind of tree would you be? Let me ask you a few questions. <laughs> well, do you really think that's about what kind of tree you are? You know, you're an oak. Oh, look, I'm an oak. No, you know, you just answered all those questions, right? That's not very trustworthy. That's pretty out there. That's pretty obvious. There are way more subtle examples where the AI isn't necessarily doing what we think it's doing or what we would intend it to do or producing the outcome that we expect or need. It's a whole field. We used to say that we wanted AI to be transparent. The reality is that methods, especially hybrid methods, have become so complex now that if you said, push the explain button and tell me everything you did to get to that answer, you wouldn't understand the explanation and there's millions of steps that went into it and it's non-deterministic and it's 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 not going to do the same thing next time because the conditions have changed and all that. So what did you gain from it? This is an evolution in that kind of thinking to get to something more useful. We need new words to talk about AI. There's nothing, there's no intelligence in artificial intelligence. It's math, right? And there's no learning in machine learning. It's regression, right? So, uh, but we use these, it's called anthropomorphism. We put these human terms onto these machine things, right? They're not machine, they're not people, you know, and they're, and they're not really thinking. And when they have a goal, they do have a goal, but it's in an objective function in a mathematical sense. It's not a goal like a spiritual goal. And and so we call it a goal, you know, and, and we need new words to talk about this stuff that we now call AI. And I don't know what those words are yet because we haven't invented them. Yeah, no, I, I love it. 
Dude, this is great. First, I got a number of things to wrap up. All right, we're going to wrap up the interview on this final question. I'll come at it with a creative angle, though, for you. Sure. Let's say that you're driving uh, to the grocery store, and you're at a red light, and up next to you, another car pulls up, rolls his window down, and it's Elon Musk in the brand new Tesla, right? And he says, hey, uh, Anthony, I want to come show you something. Come back to my estate. He doesn't have a house. He has an estate, right? You go back there, and he's got this time machine. You go into the time machine, and the only thing you can do is, so the, the rules are important here, you can go back to yourself the day you graduated your first degree of college and you get to give yourself one sentence. So you're walking up to your past self, you get to say one thing and that's it. What would that be? Well, I think the first thing, not to be snarky, but I'm very troubled by the grandfather paradox here. Like if I can go back in time, <laughs> it, this is terrifying, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wave all that off for a second. So a piece of advice to my former self do I get to then come back and be who I am now? Because who I am would change as a result of that advice, right? Hmm. Let's say that you don't know it's you and you just get to walk up to yourself and like you don't recognize that it's you in the future and you just get to say something that would be yeah. useful. Because there are some really troubling problems with temporal dynamics here, but I'm going to ignore them all because I'm a nerd. Um, I appreciate just, it. What's the advice you would give to your former self that you wish you could give yourself. I, I probably would say, don't take yourself so seriously. I would probably say things are not as black and white as you tend to feel that they are. There's a lot more gray. I would say that you will probably live a lot longer if you take a breath before you get dramatically passionate about something you believe. It probably will change if you stop and look at it a little bit more. And I would probably also say that we're not, I say this a lot, we're not, we're not human doings, we're human beings, right? What you do is what you do. Whatever you do in that moment should never define who you are. So be authentically who you are. Your job, your title, the work that you do is certainly important, but it should never be all that defines you. There must be more. And if there isn't, that's really sad. I love it. Can I give advice to people who are coming? Yes, yes. Because I, I, I get asked that question a lot, and I think it's important as we get older and have more gray hair, of which I have a lot, it's just <laughs> artificial, <It's> <laughs> artificially influenced. You know, we should, we should always think about how that same question would be if I was giving advice to other people, not just myself. The one thing I would say is to be humble, especially in computer science, data science, Things have gotten sufficiently complex now that you can't do it all yourself. You think you can because you came out of school and you had data sets that contained the answer, that were permissible to use, that were already clean. The world isn't like that, right? So make sure that you expand the circle enough to get to the right answer because it isn't about you. It's about getting to that answer. And along that same vein is help other people because they're going to be seeking your input. The second piece of advice I would say is and we talked about this a bit, you should learn to make things simple but not oversimplify them. Get, get to the right level of sophistication and don't push it more than it needs to be, but don't also let somebody trivialize it. And then the third thing, and I think this is really important, is when you're doing things, don't forget to pick your head up and reassess whether the environment has changed while you're doing it 
to the point where you should be doing something else. Be open to the fact that we're in a period of time now where the world is changing faster than the data that describes it in many cases. So be really careful about how things are changing while you're working on that thing you're working on. Nailed it. That's a, that's a mic drop moment right there. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.